Welcome to Arts and Humanities Futures, a series of conversations from the Leeds Arts and Humanities Research Institute, where we're exploring the future of research in the arts and humanities. It's a critical moment to be having this discussion. The world is responding to the enormous challenges of the COVID-19 pandemic, which has also thrown into sharp relief structural fragilities and inequities. The environmental crisis continues to unfold. Internationally, there's a reckoning with long-standing issues of racial injustice. And changes in the international order are shaping local and national contexts in a wide range of ways. These developments will help shape the arts and humanities. And the arts and humanities have a crucial role to play in helping societies respond to the changing world in which we live. So, in each conversation, we bring together researchers and stakeholders from the research community at Leeds to discuss some key questions and, in turn, to stimulate further debate and discussion. What's changing in your fields? How might the rapidly changing context for research affect your work? How do you like to see research develop over the next few years? And what might we do now to make that happen? This conversation brings together University of Leeds colleagues, Dr Helen Graham, Associate Professor in the School of Fine Art, History of Art and Cultural Studies, and Dr Jasjeet Singh, Associate Professor in the School of Philosophy, Religion and the History of Science. Helen and Jasjeet discussed issues including impact as a collaborative process, opening up to other communities, participation versus representation versus decision making, and interdisciplinarity and cooperation. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Hey Jazz, how's it going? Good, thanks Helen, how are you? <laughs> All right, thank you. <laughs> Yeah, so I guess we've got this chance to catch up, see, see what each other's going on in each other's research and think about the big questions mm-hmm. as well. So what are you <laughs> up to at the moment? What's your current research about? So I'm looking at, um, I'm kind of building on my work on, uh, on religious transmission. I've um, I finished a research project on representation of religious communities, on, on, on Sikh activism in Britain in particular, uh, which, uh, you know, got, got lots of traction. So I'm still kind of working off the... Uh, off the back of that, because that actually had quite a lot of, um, and we'll talk about this, you know, sort of during the conversation, a lot of impact outside the academy as well. Absolutely fantastic. How about yourself, Ellen? Yeah, I've just come off a project called Bradford's National Museum, which was working with the National Science and Media Museum, exploring how it could work in a locally rooted and open, engaged and collaborative way in Bradford. So that was kind of three years working with a really wide range of people to explore that question, both museum staff, People in Bradford have got fantastic experience of community development and lots of people who just had an interest in that question of how the museum could really be part of Bradford. So that's raised all sorts of fascinating questions I'm sure I'll carry on on working with for a long time. But I guess that really does show one of the main connections between our work, doesn't it? Absolutely, yeah. It's kind of working outside the academy and and, and trying to, I suppose, produce research that can be applied and used by by people outside the academy. And that's... uh, that's, I mean, that's been a, a kind of key focus of mine, I suppose, all, all the way through, really. As a, as a sociologist of religion, it's all been about what's the role of religion in society, issues of representation in the media, all that, all that kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, it, it, it's, been, it's been really important to me you know, throughout my career so far. Yeah. What's it been like moving? Because I, I could see that looking at your most recent project, just how much national traction that's got policy-wise and in terms of media as well. What was that like, sort of navigating the relationship, the research relationships with the people you were working directly with, and then that mediation into this bigger 
public sphere what was that like yeah it was it was really scary to be honest because i it wasn't something that i'd kind of signed up for and it was really interesting to see well for me personally because as an academic obviously you know you you tend to talk to your peers you tend to present your research at conferences um and you know generally it's all academics talking to other academics but then when you actually realize that um as an expert in a particular area your 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 position and your voice uh, lends lends some kind of kudos to a particular uh, perspective, uh, and that therefore means that the communities you work for um, kind of regard you as a as an expert or and or maybe even a spokesperson. Um, it's really interesting when doing undertaking a piece of research to make sure it was important for me to make sure that uh, I I took the community or I I took collaborators with me as opposed to um, kind of just saying look you know. I've I've done all this work in the past and I'm an expert and this is what this is what I think and that actually kind of helped me evolve a, a new way of engaging or a, a new for me way of engaging with uh, with people outside outside the academy and developing a a way in which the community quotes could feed back on my research as the research was progressing and that was really really important but it, it was it was uh, all the way through it was all about considering my my positionality in relation to the people I was I was talking about and working with. Yeah, that's so interesting because it's like you have to accept that responsibility at about almost you're being called into this position as being an expert. So you can't refuse that because there's something that can be gained from that positionality. But you're also obviously interested in unpicking that and sort of destabilizing that as well a little bit and like making sure that all of the voices of people that you've been working with are part of that process yeah I, I mean i suppose it's about recognizing your privilege as well because i think the, the very fact that you can undertake research means that you have the time and you know you have the the, the the capability to do that which lots of people don't so you know it was important for me to understand my position and what i could actually do and i, I presume it was the same for you at the museum as well helen in terms of expertise yeah well i, I guess um the way I would think about my expertise, such as it is, is more around the kind of ways of working. So my interests really are around using action research and collaborative research processes. So really working with people, really expanding the sense of what knowledge is to include experience and memory and embodied understandings and a whole range of that sense of what being a human is in terms of um, of knowing and being together. Um, and then using that really to understand how organisations um, can do public engagement or participation in more in more expansive ways and ways that ultimately can be transformative. So I think always my expertise is sort of slightly odd in that it's not empirical so much as it is about kind of, you know, learning and learning from others all the time about how we can work together and how we can really enable you know, multiple ways of knowing lots of different people to be involved and for that to to fit into and start to um, reconfigure the organisations that are hosting that research. So like in, in terms of the collaboration itself, so w- w- was that something that you, you came up with together? Yeah, definitely. It was completely co-produced from the beginning, the research, both with the museum. There were other um, researchers from the University of Leeds involved, um, Professor Sean McLaughlin, and who's an expert in the anthropology of Islam, and um, Professor Will Gould, who's got an expertise in like Indian history. So they were involved from the university side, but we also worked directly with the museum and the museum staff. And then also we worked with partners in Bradford 
who've just for years now been developing really sophisticated community development practices within the city and the wider district. So, for example, uh, Bradford Community Broadcasting's the, the community radio station in Bradford, and we work with Mary Dowson, who's the director of Bradford Community Broadcasting, and she brought her enormous depth and skill in really developing equitable spaces for people to take shape, take ownership over. And so being in dialogue with Mary as part of that process was absolutely essential. But not only Mary, we also worked with Tim Smith, who's um, a photographer and historian who was originally part of um, Bradford Heritage Recording Unit, which is a really innovative in the 80s and 90s space for doing community heritage work. And in both cases, they just not only have extensive networks, but methodologically at really sophisticated modes of community development practice. And so the bid came out of all, all of those people talking with each other and, and other people as well. Um, so the bid was designed collaboratively and then it was carried out in such a way that not only was that group of people involved as the research team, but also we were using an open and emergent research approach. So more and more people got involved as we went along. And um, we did a number of things, but perhaps one of the biggest was to do a co-produced exhibition called Above the Noise, 15 Stories from Bradford, which um, had 15 stories in it, as the title suggests, all of which were collaboratively developed with people who had a stake in telling that story. So about 109 people were actively contributing towards the exhibition. So we tried to use these different methods of, of action, of like, you know, doing things together as a way of starting to understand the core sort of questions about the museum's relationship with Bradford. This kind of links to the, the first podcast between Emma and, Emma and Nick, doesn't it, about the, the whole impact agenda and, and the role that it's had um, in, in HE. I, I just wondered what you, know, what you thought of, of the impact agenda, because personally I think it's been, I understand the concerns with it in terms of instrumentalisation, but I think um, the fact that the, the, the funding bodies have actually put it on the table and, and, it, and it became an important requirement in 2014 and obviously MISREF as well has meant that um, academia has, has, has kind of had to take it seriously. So it's, it's provided a space for academics to do this kind of work. Yeah, I mean, have you, have you felt like you were able to step into that space and, and make it a space you were comfortable with? Yeah, so despite the fact that um, as you know, as Nick and you know, and Emma said, it, it's about the individual in terms of reporting. Um, I think the fact that you can actually say that, look, that this this research is going to make a difference to a particular group and and get them on board. The fact that there is the space to do that, um, I think, has been has been really helpful. You know, the, the, there are issues obviously with 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 recording impact and how do you actually um, show that it's happened. But I think the fact that it emphasizes the co-production of knowledge and the fact that you know it it, it it kind of makes you think about how you're going to go about producing this knowledge. So in my case, I wrote a report on, on Sikh activism in Britain. Um, but before I published it, I did a series of, um, of workshops around the country, which were open access. You know, anybody could come to these workshops. But once you were in the room, it was all Chatham House, so you couldn't, you know, tweet or anything to feed back my findings to to the community quotes before I before I published them just to kind of get a bit of buy-in and, and make sure that I, 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 I hadn't missed anything and kind of just to kind of see if the narrative that I was talking about made sense to people who were actually involved in some of the events I was talking about. 
and it was really interesting how this evolved. So I just did it. Initially, I just did it because I just wanted to run one event and see how it went. But these events kind of became really popular and then other organizations wanted to host me as well. And as a consequence, so what's happened since then, a number of people at the event said that they, they really appreciated the fact that there were these, uh, you know, open access but yet closed events taking place where people could talk about issues that hadn't been discussed before. So since then, a number of these organizations have actually organized events on different subjects um, like mental health and, and bullying and hate crime and, and whatever on the same kind of format, which wasn't something that I'd planned. But I think the very fact of working with the community because I suppose because I knew I needed to make an impact meant that this kind of innovation came out of that. So that was that was really helpful. That's so interesting. I mean, it really points to the fact that what started as being impact, which does sound like something definitely is being done to people, doesn't it? It sounds like something exists in advance, the research, it's existing, and then it's kind of used in a way that causes impact. And I think what the example just shows that you've just given how we needed to completely change some of the linear dynamics and power relations that are implied within impact. And that really, if you want to knowledge to be live and relevant, dynamic, it also needs to be changing and owned and created by the people who are using it. And um, I think, yeah, that, that example is such a nice example of how something that might have started as being a sort of dissemination turned into something that was way not, not that at all. And, and I guess lots of things were being known and said and thought that were not, in a sense, in your report, but of, but of course have now got a life of their own uh, and are out in the world, you know, doing, doing work and things are happening as a result. And that's often the way it works, isn't it? I think, I think with the whole impact reading, which is why it's so difficult to understand what's required in terms of time and, and energy and resource because so much unexpected stuff tends to happen. And I suppose that, that, that's, that's good, isn't it? Because it means that that's the way that this conversation was meant to go on or, you know, or, or maybe needs to go. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I've just become more and more committed to really building in that kind of sense of emergence and change into you know research design so that you you know you know you don't know <laughs> you can like not and there will be unintended consequences and really thinking about that as being this you know complex set of relationships and potentials that you're setting up when you do a research project that's kind of got action and participation as part of it um, and then just really making sure you're making room for those those potentials to really flourish because that's often where the really great work is isn't it that's both producing new insight but actually more than that it's producing different kinds of relationships and different ways of being together and then that seems to me to be where the real potential for yeah exciting transformation lies as academics i mean personally you know what, what, what i found is that because because we are by nature members of so many different networks you know, d just the very fact that you can bring people together, I think plays a really, really important role. So since then, the fact that, you know, we engage with policymakers, community organizations, media, you know, using that is, 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 is really important and opening, opening avenues for, for discussion can, can make a real difference. Yeah, there is something about the positionality of, a, of an academic researcher where we do get to move between spaces and between hierarchies in a way that the inequalities in our society often mean that people, other people don't get to do. Um, and I think that's really 
been an interesting challenge in trying to design really large-scale collaborative research processes in the way that I've been involved in in recent years because part of what's often going on within the challenges that are being faced and you know that's partly to do with the Bradford National Museum project but I also do a lot of work with the City of York Council around public engagement design around large regeneration sites as well and in all cases part of what you're mediating is the fact that there are different kinds of spaces that have different forms of decision-making power and a desire from those decision makers to engage a broader range of people, but nevertheless, this quite clear stratification of agency. And so one of the interesting things in designing research projects that are working within systems which are unequal is how, which you know, where that is actually part of the core, both reality and um, the issue which will persistently come up as kind of underlying a lot of the dynamics is about how do you, that, that, that kind of positionality that researchers have got to move between spaces, how do you start at least to build kind of relationships between people who are differently situated within those hierarchies? Like in a way, enable some of that ability to move between rooms and between spaces that researchers have. Um, and how, how can more people who are part of that you know, collaborative process um, traverse those boundaries that they wouldn't otherwise be able to do because that again seems key to, to new insight but also to the kinds of relationships that might even if only temporarily create a, a little chink of potential that then you can start to do some work with. I mean the, the current the current climate where people people are, appear to be increasingly aware of these inequalities and different levels of privilege so there appears to be a desire amongst some of these stakeholders to, you know, actually open up, open up the conversations. And I, I, and I think, I think a piece of research is a is a good way to do that because otherwise, otherwise it could become quite an unfocused conversation, couldn't it? I think the fact that there there is a there's a there's a, a joint a joint area of interest, which all these groups are want to work on, um, is is a good way to bring these parties together, and, and maybe that's what the you know that's what the academic brings to this this kind of focus on this particular uh, you know piece of work or, or, or issue but I suppose I suppose the wider question is then it's the wider question about of, of the of the role of academia in the 21st century isn't it and you know the kind of the production of knowledge as a as a whole which I know some of the previous podcasts have dealt with as well yeah then one of the earlier podcasts there was a discussion about whether art creates a kind of mask or a kind of sort of safer space for more challenging ideas to be articulated, particularly in the context of um, repressive regimes, for example. Um, and I do think that in a completely different context that I work in, in the UK, there is a way in which research creates a kind of space for experimentation where people can slightly bracket it from everyday work and everyday life and be able to perhaps think in ways that they wouldn't be able to within their everyday working lives. I guess the real challenge is to really use that research space to produce new knowledge and understanding. But then I think, and maybe this is where the impact part comes in, I think really also use that space to really think about institutional design and organisational design, and in a broader local authority context that I work in, sort of local democratic design. So it has to then sort of take what you're learning about those relationships and those potentials between people and then really think in quite structured ways about how that can be sustained 
and nourished in an ongoing way so that it doesn't just stay within that slightly safer space of experimentation of a research project. I think part of it is 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 a consequence of the way in which organizations are established. So it appears you know in in the arenas that I've I've worked in so so far and even even looking looking at the funding landscape as well, you know, organizations like to work work with organizations that look like them because it's it's easier, isn't it? So even even regards funding, I remember my my PhD was funded under a, a collaborative doctoral award with a with a community partner who, who who I went out and 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 chose and you know discussed the, the the research with myself, and then I think the AHRC changed things to community do, um, doctoral partnerships, which were then much more uh, established along the lines of organisations, which then knocks out this knocked out this possibility of of engaging with with community groups because they don't look the same. Now I understand why the research councils would do that because it's obviously easier from a from an ad- admin perspective to, to, to work with a similar or sort of organization. But the, the issue with community groups, and you know this as well, Helen, is that they're, they're often, you know, one or two people, very low, very low budget, very time poor, yet you're asking them to kind of operate in the same kinds of ways. So I think in terms of the relevance and, and what universities can do, I think it's important for us to try and um, open up some of these possibilities for organisations that don't look like us, you know, in terms of hierarchy, to actually be able to engage with, with, with research and with with some of these conversations. And I, I suppose that you know the, the good thing is, you know, regards the um, the new strategy about uh, community cultural impact, all all those three things would would hopefully mean that this this sort of thing is going to happen going forward. It's a really good point that we have to constantly look at where where policy at all levels might be closing down that potential and um, to really nourish that potential where it exists within the organisational structures as they are at the moment. Um, but it, it really does seem key that, that that kind of devolution of agency within universities is something that's really looked very carefully at and really enabled because participatory and collaborative work works best when the group itself can constitute what it's doing and are able to to continue to drive and make decisions about that that research it's something that is often noted as a problem in participatory museum projects for example that um you know there might be a sense that there's a community group that's been invited in to do something but actually the decision making power around various elements of the work actually is held elsewhere much deeper into the organization and much higher up within the organization and then you know, and there's always going to be some negotiation that needs to happen between, you know, participatory processes and larger organisations that configure their responsibilities to a bigger audience like the public, for example. But really thinking about what decisions can be properly held by that, that kind of community group in making decisions is really key. And I think researchers traditionally perhaps found it easier to construct a space around decision making around the research. So I think there are there are definitely aspects of just thinking about, you know, university organisational design for really enabling that kind of collaboration to continue to happen. And I think there's a real opportunity now, um, obviously, once things open up for universities to take a lead in this. I mean, there there, there appears to be, you know, uh, we're, we're large institutions. We've got lots of space uh but yet you know talk about leads for instance on, on the top of a hill 
I'm not sure how many people driving past on Woodhouse Lane would know what actually goes on, you know, in the buildings that take place. And I think, you know, we, we have the space, we have the opportunity. I think, I think that there is scope um, for us to actually take a real civic role in bringing different groups together in, in this kind of way. I mean, you know, even during the pandemic, there's been a lot of talk in the uh, you know around the vaccine program about hard to reach communities and I I absolutely detest that phrase because no one's hard to reach it just means that they're they're seldom heard so it's a case of making sure that all the communities in the city feel invested in the institution isn't it and that's about us kind of opening out would bringing people onto campus and taking advantage of that kind of civic role in the way that you've just set it up would it change any element of the relationship that you have with people, do you think? Yeah, so that's a really that's a really good question, Helen. So when I've run events for particular communities, and I've always run them in the space where the community would normally go to, what, the role I think the campus can, can play is is, is is around what we were talking about earlier, when we're bringing different groups together in a, in a kind of a, a neutral space where there isn't a particular hierarchy or this isn't a venue belonging to a particular group. And where it is seen as a, you know, a kind of, yeah, a, a neutral place where people can talk about a particular issue. So, and also, I mean, you know, let's be honest, the, 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 the fact that you're at an event at the University of Leeds would also bring some kudos to the event and the participants as well. So I think it, I think it, it can definitely play a role in this, you know, networking, um, co-collaboration aspect that we were talking about earlier. But if I was if I was holding an event for a particular community, then I would I would usually go go to them. That's a really interesting distinction. Then it's kind of thinking about the university as being kind of a space that can enable dialogue between different people, um, different groups who have got perhaps different interests and motivations around a topic. It's kind of that sort of um, kind of public sphere idea, or sort of yeah. Museums often hope they can play that role too, um, and. I guess one of the challenges really thinking forward into this, you know, the arts humanities in the 21st century is how we can realise or maybe perhaps even rethink some of our best hopes, enlightenment hopes for all these institutions. You know, they can be places of democratic articulation, where they can be places of equity um, and of many voices being heard, of, um, of dialogue, um, of mutual understanding. But, but both types of organisation that I think of a lot, both the university and, and the museum, are so embedded in histories of colonialism, of extraction, and arguably in the way that they're structured, you know, are still maintaining in different ways some of those inequalities that make that sense of a sort of civic, you know, democratic public sphere dialogue really hard to um, actually stage. So I know what you think about that. It's kind of it's kind of like the best hopes of these institutions, and then the historical realities of what, of the kind of traditions they've emerged from. So talking to some of the some of my research respondents and getting a sense of the conversation, I think I think there's a there's a lot there's, there is a significant desire to get involved in these conversations in these institutions, but people maybe aren't sure what the mechanisms of of, of involvement are. So for instance. There was a there was an exhibition um, at a museum locally, which I uh, you know I won't name, but all the um, all the consultation events were taking place on a I think on a Thursday lunchtime, which means that you know only certain kinds of people, usually retired members of community groups, can can attend. Whereas I 
I saw lots of the energy around the around the or interest around the exhibition. You know, was were, there were lots of young people interested in the exhibition, but they they didn't have the scope to um, to to contribute. So, rega- regards opening up. There's this is there's definitely a, this is definitely a good time to do that. But it's important. It's kind of what we just said about you know going to the community, isn't it? It's it's about or if there is one space for it, but at least making. Um, Making avenues open and and maybe this the whole you know switch to video calls as opposed to meet having to meet at particular times in particular venues maybe maybe that will see things opening up and and kind of democratizing more so for instance i've been um I've been watching uh Sikh organizations in Britain for you know for a number of years, and most meetings of before the pandemic were normally held in London or in Birmingham on a Sunday afternoon, which meant that people from the, from, from, from Yorkshire and, and the North would, would have to spend eight hours getting there and, go, you know, and coming back. So most representation would generally be from people in London or the, or, you know, or the West Midlands. What's happened now is that calls are taking place every Sunday and, and, and the demographics have, have, have completely expanded. There's people from all over the country taking place, so, you know, taking part. So who knows, this could be mean that or if not, there's definitely a possibility for institutions like the university and museums to um, make things more open and accessible, and maybe do some sort of blended, you know, video meetings alongside face-to-faces on, on occasion. It's really interesting, and it is so important, isn't it, to think about very literally what those access routes are. And I think that's such an important part of the conversation. I think one of the things that I'm really noticing about museums at the moment, um, and I think there are some parallels with universities is that museums, because of the way they're set up to, you know, look after material culture for future generations and to be accessible to everyone, they're always open to challenge. You know, people can always say, um, you're not representing, you know, me, my experience. And they almost factor that in. It's almost like that because of the nature of the claim of the institution, which are very expansive, very, very ambitious maybe over ambitious there's always that kind of sense that they can be challenged but museums really like to turn every political challenge into either ones around representation i.e you know we can do an exhibition about a variety of different communities or faiths or you know they can parts of the world or one of access and those are key but it feels to me that one of the things that's been happening recently is that with the with participation, often what's being desired there actually isn't around representation or access. It's actually something more transformative than that. It's about decision making and it's about being able to use resources, perhaps in a more active way for things that aren't about the museum's exhibitions, but might be about what that community group needs or wants for its own community. And actually that makes a kind of political challenge that the museum finds it harder to metabolise. And decolonisation conversation that's happening in the, in the museum sector at the moment is another good example. People are sort of trying, you can sort of see institutions trying to turn decolonisation into a question of representation, i.e. that, um, you know, perhaps the experiences of colonial, you know, life in, in under Brit- the British colonies are being represented more clearly within museums or a question of demographics like who are the people that are coming to the museum but in a sense decolonization is such a more fundamental challenge to the institution than one that can be metabolized as representation or access it really is asking for a quite significant re at least at the absolute minimum reimagination of the kind of political logics of the organization that it can take things 
and share them to a public, which is the fundamental political logic of the museum. So I kind of think one of the things that is happening at the moment, I think universities are experiencing this as well with some of the, the defunding debates and the decolonise my, decolonize my curriculum debates, is that there's a kind of easy response, which is to look at your reading list, which you could think of as being the kind of representation kind of response. And there's an organisational response that looks, I'm quite rightly, I'm not in any way minimising this, at who's coming to study with us and looking at the racial composition of our student body, which is in need of change. But actually, decolonisation of universities is a much more fundamental challenge as well. Uh, it isn't one that can be just thought about in terms of representation or access, but actually goes to the more fundamental political logics of what the organisation is. And so in a way, I do think the arts and humanities, you know, the challenges that... Um, that this disciplinary space is facing, but also what it offers is actually to properly grapple with these challenges and, and actually to not turn them always into questions of representation and access, but look at the fundamental organisational, in a way, democratic logics of these organisations that we work for. I mean, yeah, absolutely. And it's back to the production of knowledge. I mean, as we were saying earlier, in terms of disciplines, you know, disciplinary boundaries seem to be important to academics but from my experience very few people outside the academy really care in terms of disciplinary but but what's interesting then is that academia kind of keeps this going through the fact that for instance four-star publications would need to make a significant contribution to a particular discipline so it's still important within the academy but as i said you know out 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 in the quotes real world um I, i'm not sure it's that important. So th there's definitely something around the arts and humanities and the way, the way, the way in which it configures itself within the university and 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 outside as well to make sense. Because even explaining some of this stuff to people, you know, <laughs> when you're when you're when you're undertaking a research project, is is a process in itself, isn't it? To kind of explain why things are done in in in, in particular kinds of ways. Are there aspects of the disciplinary debate that you're part of that you find useful when you're developing collaborative research projects or do you always kind of keep them sort of separate in your mind and practice so as a scholar of religion i can i, I think I, I can say that i can i can explain why i'm why i'm interested in a particular area of research without having to do too much work i suppose but um but then conversely i'm actually interested in the category of religion itself and the construction of the category of religion and where that's where that's come from you know and and the colonial the colonial impact on the on the on the category itself so um i suppose it depends which uh, which audience i'm i'm engaging with at the time yeah they're not i mean it's not mutually exclusive is it either i mean i think you can produce research where um not just that there is you know something of disciplinary interest and something of immediate relevance to the groups you're working with but actually there could be plural like you know lots of different people in one of my most recent projects had really different reasons for being part of it and we're getting different things out of it and learning different things from the process and so it wasn't even there's was just a kind of academic and non-academic kind of set of interests but actually there's a plurality of interests and people were going to be using what we were learning together in quite different ways and taking it different places um, so I think that can be a really good part of research design to enable that, that variety of different routes. And in terms of the future, I suppose, the future of the arts and humanities, um, I mean, it's, it's really interesting because, so 
I'm also director of international for the for the school as well, and I've, I'll be looking at courses around the world, and uh, you know, noticed a, an increase in interest in, in liberal arts in particular, and for a kind of broader um, arts and humanities education. And this is something that I think the British Academy have recently launched a new uh, phrase, shape, which which is about the social sciences, humanities, and arts for people in the economy. You know, kind of as a response to the emphasis on STEM, um, and it's you know. The, there's definitely something there in terms of what the arts and humanities can give in terms of an education, critical thinking, and the like, and, the, and an awareness of a, you know, lots of these issue, issues that we've been, that that we've been talking about um, so far. So, in terms of the future, that's that's something that we should really embrace. And I'm not sure that the disciplinary boundaries really really assist with that. Now, we're one of the largest faculties, you know, in, in the university, and there's so much scope. So, for instance, I teach a, a level three module on religion and media, which brings together students from the School of Media and Comms and and PRHS students, uh, most often for the first time, and it's about, it's about half half usually. And, and some of the conversations between the two are really really interesting and, and fruitful because they're bringing different perspectives to the same uh, topic. So, you know, watching that, I think there's a lot of scope for us to do that kind of thing across across the faculty. So I think one of the things that's really exciting about interdisciplinarity and really what the arts and humanities can bring to, in a way, reimagining democratic spaces, in, in a way, are, you know, what a, what a democracy might mean in the 21st century in a way that's meaningful and real and feels like democracy, is that the arts and humanities have always expanded our sense of what it means to be alive on this planet and what it might mean to live well together. And it really feels that when we're thinking about organisations, we're thinking about, you know, how we literally organise ourselves to live on this planet, then we really need to deploy that richest sense of what it means to be human. And so it's really looking at how we can put the arts and humanities to work in terms of, of that kind of noticing, uh, recognising, nourishing, cultivating that richest sense of, of, of being being alive, which includes body and memory and feeling, as well as thinking and cognition and, you know, all of the things that academia is traditionally valued. So I think there's so much scope in that kind of, you know, cross arts and humanities conversation, really to get to that question of how we organise ourselves and how we live well together on this planet. Especially given what's happened in the past year or so, which I think is going to raise a lot of these questions for for many of us, really, you know, BLM, COVID, the the the, the lot, you know, the fact that um, so much has been taken away and the, the things you haven't been able to do, you know, it's just a yeah, a, a real period of, of of reflection. And as you say, I think um, that that there is lots of scope going forward to. I mean, even even coming out of this is is you know, it, it's interesting, isn't it? It, it? Having not engaged for a year and then engaging with the arts again. You know the kind of the, the being in a you know in a in a in a stadium in a theatre. What, what, what there's there's just there's just so much there, isn't there? Kind of, and what that means to people. Yeah, I think those. And you thinking about the last year. The last year has brought together some and really crystallised the big challenges that we do need to address as a species, really, at a kind of worldwide level, and. It is to do with climate crisis and ecological breakdown. It absolutely is to do with dealing seriously with the legacies of 18th and 19th century 
colonisation, so in the way that the decolonisation debates point to and the legacies of racism that are part of our societies and institutions. And I mean, it, and it is to do with, you know, those really deep questions about whether the way we organise ourselves at the moment, whether that's in terms of universities or in terms of government and how we think about liberal democracies, really are adequate to dealing with those things. And, um, and again, yeah, I do really see that the arts and humanities has a lot to contribute to that precisely because it can expand our sense of what it means to, to be together. Thank you for joining the conversation. This is one of five conversations to be released over May and June 2021, which are available via major podcast platforms. If you'd like to comment on any of the issues raised on social media, please use the hashtag Arts and Humanities Futures and follow us on Twitter at Leeds. A-H-R-I.